Welcome to another coronavirus edition of The Term. Uh, it's our second week of doing this uh, from our respective homes. Uh, so if you hear any noise in the background, it could be my dog or Natalie's kid. Uh, anyway, we're just getting through it, so bear with us. But anyway, I'm Jimmy Hoover. I cover the Supreme Court for Law 360. And joining me now from New York is Natalie Rodriguez. How are you, Natalie? Hey, Jimmy. Pretty well healthy. I hope uh, that's the case for you and all our listeners, too. Yeah, I'm doing all right. Uh, you know, practicing social distancing as always. And I hope uh, you're singing some nursery rhymes or, or counting while you are washing your hands like my kid is. <laughs> of course. I, yeah, of course. Absolutely. I, I run through the list. I think uh, uh, the Bee Gees, I got the Bee Gees on there. I got Happy Birthday. I go through all of them. Nice, nice. Um, so we are moving things along Uh despite the uh, perhaps challenges of social distancing. And so is the court, actually. Um, On Friday, they held their conference. And while Chief Justice uh, Roberts was actually in the courtroom, in the conference room, uh, he the other justices at his request um, and recommendation uh, participated remotely. Yeah, it's it's pretty reassuring to know that the justices are abiding by the, you know, six foot rule, at least. Um, But (laughs) I think it's kind of funny that Chief Justice Roberts is still the one that's going into the court. You know, every office has that uh, kind of, I would say, maybe an older worker who just, you know, maybe is just insistent upon showing up to the job. And so maybe Chief Justice Roberts is filling that role. Well, uh, hopefully he and the other justices will be getting some support uh, technology-wise um, in the new stimulus bill that's working its way through the through Congress right now. Um, at least the latest version we've seen um, would designate about $500,000 to the Supreme Court specifically, which a spokeswoman told our reporter, Andrew Craigie, uh, would help with things like software licenses, hardware like laptops, mobile phones, basically any kind of long-term upgrades to help um, the justices and their staff stay connected during this pandemic. I wonder if budgeted in there is any money to actually hire people to train the justices to use these tools of technology because they're not the most tech-savvy institution. One can only hope, uh, you know, just to I, I know some other courts have been having some technical difficulties, which is to be understood, I think, at this time. But uh, yeah. I, I do hope they get some training. Yeah, I can imagine the, the phone calls with clerks. What is my Zoom account password again? <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Uh, but but you know what? I have to give them credit. They are moving along even during right now with all the challenges um, yes, that everyone is facing. Uh, on Monday, they also dropped a number of opinions. Um, including one that I had um, kind of been looking into, which was uh, the Comcast ruling. Some of uh, our listeners might have also been watching uh, Comcast Court versus National Association of African-American-Owned Media. So this is uh, a case uh, basically dealing with right, racial bias allegations in contracting decisions. So there's this comedian, Byron Allen, who owns a production firm, a media production firm, um, and he he uh, filed a lawsuit against Comcast, arguing that Comcast has not been working with him, with his company, and hasn't, um, you know, been airing its channels for years, in large part because of his race. Yeah, this case is kind of interesting. It has to do with, you know, how you prove the actual discrimination, right? So I, I understand that the whole dispute was, um, it came down to, if you're suing under this statute, do you have to say that um, the 
the decision not to contract with this company was uh, exclusively because of race, as in like they would have done contracts with this, uh, you know, Allen's company um, if he were not African-American. Um, the so-called but he, but for he, argument. Right. That's test. the but yeah. for argument. And, and his uh, lawsuit, as I understand it, said didn't go so far. It, it basically said that, uh, you know, race was a motivating factor in into into the reason why that the uh, company was not doing business with it. And so the distinction between motivating factor and but for was like the heart of this case. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, the Ninth Circuit from which this case came from um softened that benchmark, you know, and said that it only had to play some role. But uh, the Supreme Court, in a largely unanimous decision from the bench, set that higher bar of the but-for test um, for this particular section of the Civil Rights Act that covers contracting decisions. Um, you know, the, 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 the one, I think, interesting caveat was uh, Justice Ginsburg. She concurred with the majority, but she had her own um, opinion uh, where she, you know, stated that uh, while she agreed with everyone because there, there there's like so much precedence for these but for tests in other anti-discrimination statutes, um, she does have some concerns that it be inconsistent with tort principles. Um, and she importantly, I think, pushed back on Comcast's argument that the statute protections would only come into play on final decisions over contracting uh, versus earlier stages of contracting decisions. I, I don't really get the distinction there. Can you explain that a little bit? So so basically um, what, I, you know, Comcast would essentially be arguing is that, you know, you you would have to prove racial there was this racial discrimination in the decision in the final decision to choose this final mm -hmm. you know company versus in the vetting stages the kind of earlier vetting and the earlier stages of like kind of running through you know who might get the contract yeah it, it was kind of interesting at oral arguments um how the court was so focused on remedies um you know like I think they were pointing out that there's kind of an inherent contradiction if you were to use a motivating factor test, because if you're actually going to order remedies, like ordering a business to actually contract with um, the plaintiff in the case, then those plaintiffs would have to show to meet the but-for standard. So they didn't see how you could have a but-for standard at the end of a case, but a motivating factor at the, at like, for instance, the pleading stage or something like that. Yeah. And this was a pretty pricey high dollar case. It's like $20 billion lawsuit um, that was lodged by Byron Allen's uh, production firm. Um, and this case has, I think, major implications for a lot of other uh, similar cases, um, you know, as as Berkeley Law School dean and, and you know, previous guest on our show, Erwin Chemerinsky, uh, you know, chimed in. This just puts um, a very difficult and hard standard uh, to meet for these kind of racial bias suits. Right, because you have to, I mean, how do you show, and that's something that they also talked about at Arguments, is how do you show that um, race was the sole, like, exclusive but-for cause of some of this discrimination? It would seem to kind of, you'd have to really go into the mind of an, empl an employer or a manager making some of these decisions, which I guess could be kind of tough. And so that's why I assume that some civil rights group in response to the court's ruling were pretty critical of it. Yeah. I have to say that it, it probably uh, wasn't the stickiest 
opinion from the day. Um, I, I think you were looking into uh, the the opinion that was perhaps a, a bit stickier and trickier uh, to parse through. Yes, a very sticky case indeed. Uh, just a, bear with me while I kind of walk through this one. So the case is called Collier versus Kansas, um, and it involves um, constitutional rights surrounding the insanity defense. So the petitioner is a guy named James Collier who murdered his family and was sentenced to death. Um, the The issue here is that Collier wants to argue that he is not guilty of the charges because he couldn't tell that what he was doing was wrong at the time. It's what's known as the it's it's known as moral incapacity. Um, it's a version of the insanity defense. The only problem is that Kansas does not allow that moral incapacity defense. They allow an insanity defense, but it's a very narrow one, meaning that the only way you can plead insanity to a crime is if you argue that you did not understand what you were doing at the time. They don't allow that other moral incapacity. So instead, they only allowed him to use that evidence of his moral incapacity was at the sentencing phase. This was after he had already been found guilty because that defense wasn't available at the guilt phase of the trial. It's a little bit tricky, but um, he argues that it's the difference between you know him being not guilty and being sentenced to death. And so he's arguing that um, the due process clause of the Constitution means that he should be able to argue that he's not guilty because he didn't know what he was doing was right or wrong. So where did the justices land on this one? Well, the justices came out six to three against Collar. They said that the state of Kansas's very narrow insanity defense is not unconstitutional. Um, but what makes it pretty interesting is that Justice Elena Kagan, who's typically considered kind of the more moderate of the liberal justices, she actually ended up joining with the five conservatives on the court. She had the opinion, I should say they joined her, um, for her six to three majority ruling um, uh, against Collar and in favor of the state of Kansas. And it triggered a pretty fiery dissent on the part of uh, the liberals where um, Justice Breyer had the dissent for the two other liberals. That's interesting. Obviously, you don't normally see Justice Kagan on, on that side of the divide. Um, what was, I guess, the big draw here for her and what was kind of like the big takeaway from the opinion? Yeah, so her kind of entire opinion rests on this um, this precedent, basically, that says that the Supreme Court is pretty deferential to states when it comes to criminal liability. Unless, and this is, I'm quoting from the Supreme Court precedent that Kagan also quotes from, unless it, quote, offends some principle of justice so rooted in the traditions and conscience conscience of our people as to be ranked as fundamental. She says, okay, that's the benchmark. Anything that's that doesn't offend this fundamental principle of justice is allowed. And so she says, okay, well, is this affirmative insanity defense for people claiming that they, you know, didn't, couldn't tell the difference between right and wrong. Is that defense um, so rooted in the nation's history as to be fundamental? And she goes kind of through the historical record and she says, no. Um, in fact, she says it's kind of a hodgepodge, um, the state's 
in terms of you know how they've set up their insanity defenses she points to evolving standards or evolving theories of criminal liability and mental health and she says you know there really isn't like a uniform national insanity defense that goes back you know uh decades or centuries and so she says what kansas has done is within its uh discretion to do as a state in in adopting its own standards for you know the, the insanity defense um that actually was not the conclusion that justice Breyer, just as Ginsburg and Justice Sotomayor came to, and they said, specifically Breyer, who had the opinion for the dissenting justices, said um, what the state of Kansas had done was, quote, eliminated the core of a defense that has existed for centuries, that the defendant, due to mental illness, lacked the mental capacity necessary for his conduct to be considered morally blameworthy. So kind of what this came down to was a like a different reading of the historical record. Was this moral incapacity test like a fundamental part of uh, of principles of justice in 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 American history, or or was it not? And and the two sides came to to different readings of the of the of the record. There, do you think Kagan's being a, a bit of a deal maker on this case? I would say I, normally I would say yes. You know, she's very pragmatic. Um, she is uh, known for kind of striking compromises um, and you know reaching out to the kind of conservative. Uh, wing of the Supreme Court. But in this case, it's it's kind of hard to see her really striking a deal here. I say that because it's not totally clear to me that she's avoiding like some, you know, conservative, like some landmark conservative opinion that would have happened had she not joined the conservatives. It could be that she is just shoring up um, the court's precedents. Like, you know, rem- uh, that, that, that whole fundamental principle test you know that's a that comes from the court's precedent so maybe what she's doing here is she's saying you know even in a case involving like maybe kind of a borderline ideologically divisive issue like um the insanity defense she's saying i'm really going to rely and look to our precedents even the ones that maybe i don't agree with um and so maybe she's building up credibility for down the road when you know uh, maybe it's a precedent that the liberals like that's on the chopping block that she can say, no, look, you know, this is we should really be looking to our precedents here. And I am the starry decisive justice. And so, you know, look, uh, even in results that I don't necessarily like, I, I go with the court's ruling. So maybe that could be what she's doing here. But in the end, um, it's not it's not clear that she's doing some big compromise like she's done in, in past cases like the Masterpiece Cake Shop case or the, you know, others. The uh, I am a starry decisive justice. I kind of wish uh, there were T-shirts of that uh, for the justices to, to wear. She'd be the first. To, she'd be the first to buy one. I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> um, that uh, kind of moving on to perhaps a, a bit of a lighter note. Uh, you also had uh, another story this week uh, involving the justices and some uh, kind of disclosures or or unveiled information about uh, kind of the perks they get uh, from their their travels and their uh, events. Yeah, absolutely. So we talk a lot on this show about the justices going here and there to this college and that college, um, accepting awards and giving talks and kind of what they say. But we don't actually have a lot of details about, you know, just like the circumstances of their travel, like where they're staying or what they're doing while they're in like Milwaukee or where have you. Um, But actually a judicial watchdog group called uh, Fix the Court got their hands on some pretty interesting documents. So what they did, which was kind of ingenious, actually, they 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 filed a bunch of state public records requests to the public um, colleges and universities that 
host the justices um and because there's you know state equivalents of the freedom of information act and those apply to public universities and so they actually got their hands on uh you know just shy of four thousand documents from i think 13 different schools where the justices appeared and uh it's those documents kind of shed light on the circumstances of their travel for instance like we learned you know the justice had been taking rides at least one uh just thomas had taken a ride on a private plane down to uh when he was teaching a course at the university of florida um we learned that Justice Kagan had, uh, you know, uh, observed, a, I think it was a University of Wisconsin football game from the chancellor's box, you know, something that not everyone nice. gets to do. Exactly. Yeah. yeah um, gifts. I think uh, uh, Chief Justice Roberts had gotten a Betsy Ross flag as a gift. Um, uh, the, the report goes into details about um, some of the dinners that the justice had been attending, like uh, a $500 blue plate special or something like that at one college or another um and so it was just kind of fascinating to see kind of a little bit into the kind of pampered lifestyles of supreme court justices as they kind of make their way around the country and do their public appearances and 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 things like that my understanding is this also led to some of them to have to amend their financial disclosure reports right though yeah so uh fix the court had, had had reached out to the court about what it found to be some omissions um, for some, because the, I should say the justices, they, they annually, they file uh, little disclosure reports where they include, you know, their, their, their financial information, some of it, and um, their uh, reimbursements from some of these, uh, 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 you know, visits to other, other schools around the country. But uh, Fix the Court found that some of them were not uh, reported. So actually the court got back to the group and said that uh, at least Justice Thomas and Sotomayor would be amending their uh, financial disclosure reports to include those reimbursements. What do you think was uh, perhaps the most interesting uh, tidbit from from all those disclosures? Well, I would say two things. So I, I think it's really interesting to see the lengths that the justices go to to kind of control the environments of their appearances. You know, they don't want like um, people coming out of left field with weird questions. And so I think Kagan actually had her staff screen some of the questions at a Q&A um, where they struck questions about um, Justice Neil Gorsuch joining the court. Um, one was about the political nature of court confirmations, which I think is a fair question that a lot of uh, uh, other justices would answer. Um, she t- she declined or she screened a question about how she hires law clerks. Um, and then even one about the movie Black Panther, the, the group had found make you cut a, a question about the black panther movie like that Maybe cannot she be that it. controversial <laughs> <laughs> although she's i think she's a spider-man fan because i think a spider-man reference made it into one of her opinions one time anyway oh, interesting um, lastly i would say another interesting tidbit um that i think a lot of court watchers will delight in and this is something that you know all credit to fix the court for finding this out is that ruth bader ginsburg actually does sign some of her emails or letters or correspondence with rbg <laughs> so she's adopted the I, moniker i love it i love it uh, she just well, needs to throw we'll, a notorious in there that's pretty much it good. <laughs> i love it uh well i think we will be signing off ourselves uh right about now uh thanks so much jimmy it's been a uh, great chatting with you yeah definitely and, and thanks to our listeners for tuning in we'd like to thank our producers and editors Stephen trader and danielle smith our executive producer, Amber McKinney, and our contributing reporters this week, Ann Cullen and Andrew Craigie. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. 
You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law360 in the term. Thanks for listening.